Well, if you were here for the adult Sunday school class, you got a good introduction to our passage today in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Uh, he wasn't teaching out 1 Peter 4, but he might as well have been. So I don't know. He's stealing my notes during the week. He's sneaking in while I'm at the Bahamas and reading my stuff. I don't know. So I cut out during Sunday school hours, I was listening, I cut out about half of my cross-references. I don't need to use them anymore because you already know them. Uh, but let's read 1 Peter 4, 1 and following. Therefore, since Christ also suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drunk, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. We're gonna, well, we'll read the end of the section. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. As we talked about this in the past, we recognize that verse 6 of chapter 4 is the conclusion of something that was introduced uh, in verse 18 of chapter 3. This section uh, that uh, we go into the past to reference what's going on in the present. We are not uh, today preaching to dead people, but rather, although, but we, rather that people who were dead in Peter's day had been preached to in the past so that they might have life. Uh, even though they are in the grave from our perspective that because they have responded to the gospel. So we're going to reach that when we get that and review this whole section again when we get to that in a couple of weeks. But today we want to look at these first few verses, the first three particularly, and again reference uh, back into the previous section, because as mentioned earlier, uh, this is really a very poor chapter break. It's right in the middle of a theme for Peter, and uh, even the allusions to the allusions to the, the alluding to one another here in, in uh, verses 18 uh, and following in chapter 3 and into chapter 4. And that is not only to the suffering of Christ, which is we are immediately confronted with, but also with the concept of baptism as a picture of our uh, immersion in Christ, of our identification with Christ, and the uh, aspect of that that is uh, that we are a new person, and that's certainly referenced back to in chapter 4. And so let's look at this a little bit. Uh, and we're going to take it from a, a perspective not of our, of our conversion experience, although certainly that is referenced here. And with the conversion experience, we're not only talking about your confession of Christ and your repentance and, and uh, that acknowledgement and determination or decision to follow Christ, but also the baptismal act as the first step of obedience. We're putting that together as your conversion experience, and we're going to go beyond that. And we would really delve this into the area, not so much of your justification as, in theological terms, your sanctification. How do we come more like Christ? Once having made this commitment to Christ, how are we going to move from being what we were to being what God has made us into? What God has born in us through the work of Jesus Christ. And Peter is going to move this forward and he's going to continue the same theme that even as we talk about the suffering of Christ and the identification there, that we understand in verse 18, we've already referenced it, that we are put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. And it is that statement that he wants to develop here in chapter 4, verse 1 and following. What does it mean to be put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit? We're not talking about just at your funeral experience. We're talking about in your daily life of putting this uh, flesh in its proper place and replacing that uh, mind, that commitment to the flesh 
with a commitment to the Spirit of God. And that is that process of sanctification. And uh, this is a principle that you learn in Sunday school is shared broadly by many authors. And of course, you're in the Gospel of Mark, and so this is Christ's words. Peter's going to obviously, uh, as a good student, uh, hold to that and forward that and press it and use some of the same verbiage. We also see uh, Paul's teaching of this, and if there's any one passage that this is the Petrine version of the Pauline passage, it's Galatians 2, 20 and 21. So let's read that one so we can kind of see that connection. That This is not just Peter's concepts, but it's for all of us. In Galatians chapter 2, and we can even build, go in verse 19, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. And so for Paul, while his focus there is on the aspect of no longer trusting in the law, but trusting in Christ, that Christ has supplanted the law, is greater than law, is the completion of the law, and therefore I have died to that. I have died to that idea that somehow in my flesh, by, by keeping these laws in this world, I can attain to something in, outside of Christ is foreign to the scriptures, even all the way back. And that's why he keeps referencing Abraham. Abraham, well, how is he credited for righteousness? It wasn't by his, his lengthy life of obedience, but rather uh, it was because there was no law at that point, and, but rather it was by his faith. His faith was credited for righteousness. So Paul here in Galatians 2.20 tells us, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And this is the, now we come to 1 Peter 3, Four, and we find a very similar concept. The idea, really chapter 3 and 4, we have the idea that we are dead to something and alive to something else. That this is the experience of every true believer in Christ Jesus. We have put something to death in our life and we have brought a new life in something else. Not in a commitment, not in a choice to change our lives, but rather in the working of Christ, of identifying with him and making that choice to follow Christ, that we're going to trust in him and not in anything of this world, not of my own activities, not of my own character, uh, that I'm not trusting in me at all. I know I fall short in every category. And hence, I am not sufficient of the task, even if I were to try to keep the law like the Judaistic Judaizers even to this day that describe themselves as Messianic believers and things like that, that are trying to revive the keeping of the law. Uh, when Galatians makes it very clear, that's not going to work. That's not inherently more pleasing to God. What is more pleasing to God is that we put to death our flesh that we might live in the Spirit. And that is a process it is a process over time that we call sanctification. It certainly begins at your conversion experience, and that is where you declare your commitment to that process, but that process is ongoing. It will continue till you receive your glorified state in your new body. But hopefully as you're going through that process, that while it is not a smooth journey upward and forward, um, it has lots of bumps on the road, lots of ups and downs, but overall the trajectory of that process should be more to be more and more Christ-like. You will fail, and hopefully you will learn from those failures, overcome them, repent of those, and rebound. We come back into the proper direction of sanctification, which is more like Christ, Christ-likeness. And so Peter wants to help you with this process and we want to talk about this. Is therefore, of course, that makes it well connected to all the verses prior. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. And so we, when we talk about the crucifixion of the flesh, we find that 
there is something that prefaces the actual suffering. What prefaces the suffering, and we're going to talk about suffering a lot today, uh, simply because Peter does, and because it is a necessary agent in that process. We talked about that last uh, Lord's Day evening as well, uh, in our context of euthanasia, and that that's someone physical suffering is not uh, an appropriate reason to take a life. In fact, it is an instrument used by God to do some of his best work in our life. And we're going to talk about that here shortly. But we find that the process of sanctification, that our part of it, and certainly God is not uh, a foreign element in this. He is engaged with us. That's what the Holy Spirit does in us through the work of illumination, through conviction, through uh, strengthening, comforting, all of those things. The Holy Spirit is the divine element in our sanctification that transforming us into the image of his son. And so he is there. But we have a part, like any relationship, we have a part. And that part begins by having a mind that is prepared and prefers godliness over carnality. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul says, Right? In Philippians 2. Well, here's something very similar in, in Peter. Is that you're going to arm yourselves with the same mind. The mind of Christ. And we have to go to the Gethsemane to really get a hold of what that mind entails. Because that is the initiation of Christ's uh, suffering. It didn't start when he got taken to the trial in the middle of the night and beaten on. And it didn't start in the Roman uh, captivity in that period of time. His, his suffering started in Gethsemane. And so we want to know, well, if I'm going to have the mind, if I'm going to be armed, armed means I am you know, prepared. I'm, I am prepared for this battle of sanctification, of becoming more Christ-like. If you're going to really arm yourself, then you're going to have to put on a mind that Christ had. Arm yourselves with this same mind. We go to the Gethsemane, we find what the mind of Christ is. And yes, you heard some of that this morning in Sunday school, that it's not about me. Even though I am already in this state of suffering, and I'm not ignoring the pain that is involved there, Christ certainly recognize the pain. He says, well, if it was possible, it'd be nice to avoid this. But it's not. And so I surrender my will to yours, Lord. This is the mind of Christ that you must be armed with when you engage in the battle for your own sanctification. And again, you're not alone. It's not you against everything because you have you and the Spirit of God with you engaged in this battle. And you have some other benefits we're going to talk about here in a little bit. But the first thing we are commanded to do is that we should arm ourselves also with the same mind. That we should have that mind of Christ that we see at Gethsemane where he says, not my will but yours be done. I surrender my flesh to your purposes that I might suffer for their forgiveness. Not suffering for my own sin, but suffering for their sin. And even becoming sin for them. Christ knew full well what that meant. It meant that he and the Father were soon to be separated, never having been separated in all of eternity. Not because he did anything wrong, but because you and I did. And this is the mind that we have to engage in if we're going to understand the process of sanctification, of becoming more like Christ, is that I am not living to myself, to this flesh, to its lusts, to satisfying its desires. Paul says it right, that I, I beat my body into subjection. I recognize that this body is, <laughs> let's see, how can I, is, a, is an anchor I'm dragging around in this journey of my sanctification. 
It is something that I have to bring under subjection. And wow, are we not taught that anymore at all. You're, you're not even ch teaching your children this idea of having their bodies under subjection, under control. We read through in Galatians, again, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, which is contrary to the uh, activity of the flesh, and that last one is critically important, is self-control. And we don't teach that. We, we are told to indulge the flesh. This is the whole concept of society. Uh, whenever society gets uh, relatively uh, well off, and this isn't just in our culture, uh, in our period of time, you can go back and trace this in almost every period of time, that when there is an ascendancy of an empire, nation, or people group, that they uh, achieve some level of, of success from the world's standpoint, they're not worried about food and clothing and survival and war, that they will indulge their flesh and it will become an obsession of theirs. You can see it in the Roman Empire, you can see it in, the, you can see it in, in empire after empire, even in Athens uh, during the Greek Empire, you can see the indulgences that they engage in once they're not struggling for survival. So we are not alone in this predicament uh, in time or on the earth. Uh, we share this with many, many others. And so we come to this idea that I have to arm myself with a mindset that recognizes that my flesh is not something to be obeyed, but something to be brought into subjection. I have to arm myself with a different mindset. The mindset of Christ, that this body, this flesh, is not an end to itself. Satisfying the lust, the desires of this body is not going to bring happiness. It's not going to bring contentment. It is not going to bring fulfillment. It's not going to do any of that. In fact, it's going to do quite the reverse. And so we beat these bodies into subjection, into obedience. You're going to obey the will of my spirit. I am not going to obey the desires of the flesh. And this mind recognizes that my flesh here, if it's not an end to itself, why is it here? Why am I not immediately transported as soon as I accept Christ as my Savior, make that public profession in baptism that, the Lord, that I am the Lord's and He is mine, and that I walk in newness of life, why am I not immediately then transported into His presence so I don't have to deal with it? Because He has a purpose for your flesh on earth, and it's not to indulge it. It is to serve the gospel, to serve him. This is the mind of Christ with regard to his flesh. Why was he in the flesh at all? Why was Christ born in Bethlehem? Why was he in a body? Why, why was he hungry? Why was he thirsty? Why did he get tired? Why did he have to sleep? Why? <laughs> To serve you with salvation, to provide for you, for others. We find that the mind of Christ to prepare us for the journey of sanctification is a mind that recognizes I am not here for the indulgence of my flesh, I am here for the glory of God in the service of His kingdom. And this is what I bring my body into subjection to. We're not talking about just shifting our diet a little bit so we can drop a few pounds and, 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 and you know, slap ourselves on the back. Much more substantial than that. The world does that. We are talking about giving ourselves over entirely to Christ in this flesh. That we recognize the death of the power of the desires of our flesh. And what we are talking about is transitioning from a life of selfish indulgence to divine service. And that process is sanctification. That the more service-oriented, the more I am living for others instead of myself, 
the more that I bring this flesh under my control and to do the, the purposes that I recognize before God is my responsibility to do, the more like Christ I am. So we begin by changing our minds. Arm yourself with a mind of Christ. Arm yourselves with it. It means that you're going to take this up as a task. And like any other weaponry, you got to be, learn to be proficient at it. Okay? <laughs> if, you, if you throw me a weapon and say, defend yourself, and I'm not accustomed to it, what did Daniel tell Saul? Not Daniel, David. What did David tell Saul? Yeah, this is great armor, this is great weapons, but I'm not skilled at using them. They're going to hurt me. And so he goes out there with what he is used to using, and he's really, really good at the sling because he's practiced. And the process of sanctification is taking up the mind of Christ and practicing it and strengthening ourselves in it more and more and more. I do not expect the brand new Christian that is immature in their faith and even the very old Christian who's still immature in their faith, that happens too, the book of Hebrews tells us that, okay, uh, that we take the immature Christian, expect them to handle themselves in an unselfish manner. That simply says, I'm here to serve God's people, God's kingdom, and I'll do it however God chooses, whether it be through uh, suffering, whether it be through uh, extending myself beyond uh, what is deemed reasonable by men. I don't expect that from the immature, but from the mature, I very much expect it. In fact, the Bible demands it from the leadership of his church that we are here to serve one another. That we're not just looking out after our own interests, but after the interests of others. That we, in Philippians 2, consider others better than ourselves, more than worthy of our entire life's effort. This we need to arm ourselves with a mind. Let it begin in your mindset. And so to this I can talk better than the rest of what we have to talk about. That we need to put on a mindset of what it might require of us to do the will of God. And that's really what we're coming down to is the, that we are no longer going to live the rest of my time in the flesh for the lust of men before the will of God. Of God. I want you to connect these. We having the mind of Christ is about doing the will of God. And it does require a different mind. And the world is not going to develop that mind. You spend an enormous amount of time in the milieu of the world. I spend an enormous amount of time probably a lot less than you do, but a lot of time in the milieu of the world. I'm not in a workplace, so I'm not in, in, in enveloped in that kind of, of environment. Um, but certainly between our entertainment, our news gathering, whether you're reading a newspaper or the internet or anything in between, the TV, and that doesn't matter whether it's just mainstream or non-mainstream. I don't know what non-mainstream is, but um, they all stream about the same on my computer. I don't know what. Um, the conversations that we're having, the, the relationships that we're developing, and even the family life that we have, how much of it is divorced from the mind of Christ, that it is really the influence of the lusts of the flesh and the will of men. It is the lusts of men. It is the will of the Gentiles in verse 3. We have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles, and we don't often see those as the, as the battle that we are engaged in. We just don't recognize it. That there is the will of God and the will of the Gentiles, the will of the flesh, the lust of this body, of, the, of these mortal aspect of who we are, that there is a true warfare going on in there. That that is where the mind of Christ must be engaged first and foremost. 
that the world calls you. Oh, man, do they call you with great power, and they have much more of your time and attention than God's word and his truth and his will have. They just do. How much time do you spend here? You pay me a ridiculous amount of money for what amounts to, what, about two and a half hours maybe total of exposure to the teaching of God's word. Maybe only an hour and a half. And if you sleep through that, not even that. That's less than one movie. You watch one Hollywood movie and you're exposed to more of the philosophy of this world than you are in the entire week among God's people. Let that sink in a little bit about who has the greater influence on your mind. We haven't even touched the rest. Just one movie. One. We now have gone beyond the time spent among God's people listening to God's word. And we're enthralled by the movie because of the power of talking pictures, which Revelation 13 warns us about. We have the power of that. And so we um, are enthralled with that, and we're kind of bored with, the, with having to go to church and listen to that. And, and you probably feel that suffering. We're going to talk about that here. And so you suffer through this. Do you ever wonder why young people are so impacted by camp? I got saved at a summer camp, church camp. You know why they are so impacted? Because they had no competition. From morning till night, they were engaged with God's word, with godly people, with, with fun activity. They were disengaged from the will of the Gentiles for a whole week. And that's why so many decisions for Christ are usually hitting a camp Thursday night, Friday night. Because it takes about that long to try, and that's why I really am an advocate of seven and ten day camps, because it takes that long to get it out. For the first few days, all they're doing is quoting to each other uh, their favorite movie lines. They really are. I mean, just I, I sit in there and listen to their conversations, and that's what it is. And, and they're talking about... And then it takes about three or four days, and then pretty soon they're starting to realize, oh, there's, there's spiritual matters I should be dealing with. It takes that long to purge that, at least sufficient enough for them to make some spiritual decisions towards the end of camp. Your mind is the spiritual battleground. Satan knows it, but you don't. And he wins simply by attrition. He simply has more of your time to listen and to be in, enveloped in the will of the Gentiles and the lusts of men uh, than the will of God has in your time. It's just the numbers. Just, just If you've done any warfare, just stack up the numbers. I know we think that there's these wonderful battles that, you know, two guys are going to take on 5,000 and win, um, but that is in fantasy, okay? They lose. Unless your name is Jonathan and his armor bearer, and they didn't take out 5,000. They took quite a number. This is your battleground, and we are predominantly losing it in Christian circles. When we start bringing the world in, and I remember... uh, one of the last times I ever was in camp with a Wana scholarship camp, and um, I was infuriated. Why? Because the speaker each night, to draw the kids to his point, projected a scene from a movie. Not biblical movies, Hollywood movies. 
And when the Iwana missionary comes to me and says, what do you think of our speaker? And I just stood there and I just looked at him and, and <laughs> he says, that's all I needed to not hear. I said, we're trying to get these kids away from that and he thinks that that's the only way you connect to them. You see, we've lost the battle for the mind, for our sanctification. That when we expose ourselves to all of this over and over and over again with, with hours and hours and hours, and then we grumble about a few minutes of spending our time in the mind of Christ and in the Word of God, and then we wonder why our sanctification is happening, why we struggle to, to verify our salvation. And yes, sanctification is the verification of your salvation. It says you're true, you're genuine, you're real. That's what sanctification is. And you're losing that. You lose your hope. You lose your peace. You lose your confidence. You lose your prayer life. You lose it all. They say, you think I can lose my salvation? Well, I'm pretty sure there are certain books in the Bible that kind of talk like that. Like Hebrews, beware. Do you really want to get that close to finding out? Sanctification is the verification of your salvation. Why jeopardize that? But yet we do constantly. And so when he says it is time that you have uh, suffered in the flesh to cease from sin... Let's go back now. Now we have our mind. We're armed with our mind. I have a different mindset. I need to put on the mind of Christ. And this is the battle that I'm involved in. The battle begins there. Not in your lifestyle issues. <clears throat> not in your decision making. Those are going to be the, the end result of what the battle for the mind is. And so we have the mind of Christ. I'm here to do the will of God. That is the purpose. And I have to tell my body that sometimes. Like this morning. Get up. Yes, you're tired. Get up. And last week was even worse. I could have slept through Sunday school and church easy last week. Just about died. It was the yard sale week. I didn't get done cleaning up from the yard sale till Wednesday, 1 o'clock. Not what you guys were doing all week. That's what I did last week. First half of the week. Get up. I'm tired. I don't care. Get up. Not to go to work to earn money, to have more luxuries in my life. Get up because your responsibility is to serve God today. And that's not just on the Lord's day, that's every day. Get up. My body does not decide these things. My spirit decides these things. I'm here to serve God. I will overcome my flesh to do that. Does my flesh want to sleep? Yes. Does my flesh want to uh, consume a lot of things that aren't good for it? Yes. Does my flesh want to participate in all these activities? Does my, do my eyes lust after things that I really don't need? Of course they do. Because it's flesh. That's why I have to beat down the body, to bring into subjection and say, no, don't be ridiculous. And yes, we live at a ridiculous point of luxury. And so when he says, listen, he who has suffered has ceased from sin, he is setting you up. Oh, he, Peter is really setting you up. I want to be sinless. Now, we have some doctrines out there, the Nazarenes and a few others, that, that teach uh, that you come to a state of sinlessness uh, at some point. And if you engage with any of those kind of people, they have some interesting perspectives about how that happens. Um, I had a boss that was a Nazarene in college, and so I had several discussions with him. Um, I, 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 they, they really do believe that at some point they will become sinless in this earth, in this flesh. Uh, and this is one of the passages that they like to do. Well, we've been put to death, therefore we should not and cannot sin uh, if we are true believers. 
and we come to, and, and by the way, if you think that's not in other groups, um, there's a group that's been coming here trying to get me to go to a pastor's thing this month, and, uh, and several of you have engaged him because he comes during our services instead of uh, a more convenient time for us and disrupting us and in Wednesday night and Sunday school and things like that. And so I look up what they believe, and that's what they believe, is that you'll have sinlessness at some point. Uh, in fact, sinlessness is the evidence of your salvation. Okay? Well, that's not what Peter here is talking about. You're going to bring your body into subjection. That you have suffered in your flesh, you will cease from sin. Why? Because the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is the source of root of sin. And so when I bring my body under subjection, say, no, I am not going to let your desires, what you see and lust after, which is different for different people, what you want, your, your comforts, your luxury, your uh, misguided uh, desires of uh, going to drive my life. And yet for most people, all people. That is what drives their life. And that's why they're miserable. Because you feed your flesh and feed your flesh and feed your flesh and you know what you get? Hungry flesh. It wants more. More, 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 more. There's no end. Go ask the billionaires. We got billionaires around. Go ask them. How much more do you need? More. You have billions. How much more do you need? More. You see, it doesn't matter whether you are at this point where you don't think that you're rich, but you are, and you want more, or whether they're billionaires and want more. The problem is, the reason you want more is because you're living your life feeding your flesh. And the Bible says, put it to death. It has died, and then sin will stop. Because now, discontentment will not be there. You will not be fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, the pride of life. Those things are abhorrent to you. You say, oh, I hate those things. And when you fall to them, when you succumb to them on occasions, you will, you will be despising your own eyes. You'll say, I don't want that in my life. And you'll repent, and you'll confess that, and you'll be forgiven, you'll be cleansed, and you'll set yourself straight. Holy Spirit will help you along that trajectory. But it demands something of you that you have a mind that recognizes this is the source of my misery. Yes, luxury is the source of your misery. Wealth is the source of ministry. And you pursue it with all of your energy. You sacrifice everything for it. You'll sacrifice your relationships with your family. You'll sacrifice your relationship with God. You'll sacrifice your relationship with your church. You'll sacrifice everything to increase the luxury for your flesh. I want, I want, I want. I see, I want, I see, I want, I see, I want, I see, I want. I got to keep up with my neighbors. I got, I, oh, they got, I wish I had a car that talked to me. That did this, that did that. I mean, it does no end. And you are in a literal little rat's wheel, expending all of your energy for something that will not and cannot and will never satisfy you. You will live miserably and die the same condition, serving no one, not even yourself. Not your true self, not your spirit. You have served your flesh, and your flesh is a horrible taskmaster. And this is what Paul identifies the flesh in. He says, oh, I hate this body of sin, he says in Romans. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Because no matter where it goes, it always end up dead. This is what uh, Solomon described in, in, uh, <laughs> in, in all of his writing, that it's all vanity, I pursue this, I pursue, I pursue this, and it's just, at the end, I die, and then somebody else takes it and wastes it. I try to accumulate, 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 and it's worthless. Oh, that we would understand that if we want to get rid of sin out of our life, and I thought, oh, Christian, oh, yeah, I can't wait to get rid of sin. I says, okay, well, give it up. 
Give up the lusts of your flesh, the lust of the eyes, and your pride of your life. Give it up. I believe Christ had that same discussion with another guy who had all the luxuries of life. Comes to Jesus and says, hey, uh, I want to inherit eternal life. I want to be part of the kingdom of God. Go sell everything you have and come follow me. Huh? Are you nuts? You know how hard I've worked to acquire all this stuff? Then you're in a sad condition. Because you're going to end up like the rich man who built all the barns and filled them up with feed and sat back and said, I can relax because my barns are filled and my, and my estate is established and, and now I can eat, drink, and be merry. And then he dies that night. Your soul's required of you. And Lazarus, the sickly, poor guy that was the beggar, is the one that's in Abraham's bosom while you're in a place of torment. Do we understand the reality of that is the reality for most American quote-unquote Christians? I will eat, drink, and be merry. I will fulfill the desires of this flesh. This will be the driving point of my life. This will give me fulfillment. And you have deceived yourself. Because there's never enough. Some have taken this text and said, well, this is talking about your physical death, that when you suffer in the flesh, because Christ suffered for us in the flesh, is referring to his death. That's why I wanted to take you to a time before his death to understand that Christ's suffering started in Gethsemane. He's not talking about your physical death. He's talking about the death of the power of your flesh, because in the very next verse he says, he, should no long, he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men. You've, and he's going to say, you've already done enough. You've already lived that way long enough. And I have to ask you, have you lived that way long enough yet? For your own conveniences, your own comforts, your own interests. Have you lived enough that way yet, or are you still just committed to that? Well, Peter says, you know, you lived enough of your life that way. Isn't it time to live God's way? to commit the balance of your days to serving the Lord. I'm really excited when young people make that commitment uh, and say, I want to live the rest of my life for the service of the Lord. I say, well, that's a big challenge for you. I'm going to have to pray for you hard because uh, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, prior life is going to be inundating you and you're going to have a battle you're not prepared for because the numbers don't, aren't in your favor at all. Your time in God's word is minuscule compared to your time in the world. And their influence. You're going to lose the battle of the mind first. And then, because you're not going to have the mind of Christ, you're not going to be able to suffer in the flesh to cease from sin. Does suffering really produce sanctification? In the sense that Peter uses it here, absolutely. It is the idea of abstaining the flesh. And Yes, we have people that, that took this to a great extreme and thought that that was the only thing they had to do and they would become holy people and so they would take vows of silence and of poverty and go put themselves in, in places of uh, isolation and which isn't what God is referring to here. He's talking about the same principle of denying your flesh its interests. That this is not a priority of living. And so I have to ask you a question. Let's just do a little test to see how willing you are to suffer in the flesh for the will of God. Are you prepared to stand in the rain for three hours and listen to God's word? Israel did that when they found the word of God. And a guy named Ezra got up there and started reading it in the rain. All the women and children for hours to listen to it being read. You prepare to stand in the rain for three hours to listen to the book of 
Deuteronomy to be read to you? Oh, maybe sin is more precious. Now we understand our flesh. That we're really about comforting our flesh instead of developing our spirit. This is really the concept behind fasting, is that I'm going to deny my flesh so that I can focus myself on spiritual activity. And when you fasted in that time period, that meant a lot of time was freed up because a lot of your time was spent in food preparation. They didn't have microwaves and mixers and grocery stores. And so how much of your day was, made, was just preparing food for your family? How much of the day? When you had to go butcher the animal? When you had to go cut the wood for the fire? When you had, yeah, oh, oh. Yeah, so when you decide not to eat that day and you didn't have to go out there and make bread because you made bread every day in most societies, you went out and made a loaf of bread every day. And by making that bread, you didn't go buy flour. You ground it on a stone. Oh, so when I fasted, I suddenly freed up a lot of time that I could focus my attention on things of the Lord and the Bible tells us not selfishly, but rather in service. And that's why the Bible says, when you fast, don't walk around like you are. <laughs> Letting everyone know. You just use yourself exuberantly and energetically for the work of the Lord, to do the will of God, instead of the will of the Gentiles, the will of your flesh. You are, you are causing suffering of your flesh, you are purposefully causing suffering of your flesh so that you can focus your attention and even those hunger pains remind you of why you are doing this. Oh, wait, I'm hungry? That reminds me. I'm fasting so that I can focus on the will of God. If you walk around and go, oh, I'm so hungry. Oh, oh, oh. You've lost the battle. Your flesh has control of you. You don't have control of your flesh. So this is the idea of suffering brings an end to sin. You will cease from sin. That is, if you want to take this sin of pursuing this world out of your life, then you are going to have to extract something from your body. You're going to have to bring it under subjection and say, you are going to be deprived of your luxury. And please understand, it is luxury that you're depriving it of. How long can your body go without eating? I think Christ fasted for a little while. Uh, you'd be surprised what it might do. How long can your body go? And so without the internet, how long can your body go? Without entertainment, how long can it go? Oh, you mean I could... Fast from that? Sure. You could if you're winning the war of your mind. But since most of us aren't, you can't. Because you haven't trained your body to be subject to the will of God. You have trained your body to be subject only to itself and the will of the world. So you will get up and you will uh, go through all this to make sure that you're on time or even early for work, but you'll not go through any of that effort and energy to be on time early for church. You will go through all this effort and energy to make sure that you are there for your favorite ball game on TV or your favorite program, but you will not go through that effort and energy to make sure that you have set aside enough time to spend daily time in God's Word and in prayer. You will, go th you will lose this battle because you've lost it in your attitude through life and you've forgotten to put on the mind of Christ. I am here to do not my will, but his to be done in me. And it, I'm calling you today to examine the decisions of your life. Why are you doing what you are doing every day? 
Why is it your convenience most important in your life? Well, it's not convenient for me. Okay. Well, that's going to be hard for me to make that happen. Okay. You've lost. We know who your God is. You're doing the will of the Gentiles. You're doing the will of your flesh. Because you can't be inconvenienced to serve others. You don't want to go out of your way. I really was, I have have other plans. Okay. What are they? Oh, I have a party. Okay. We'll serve him, God, without you. We are surrendering luxuries is what we're surrendering, not necessities, and we call that suffering. Bill talked about a little bit this morning in Sunday school, and I'll refresh your memory, that when the Bible talks about the end times, talking about standing, um, we are there and we are not. Most churches aren't standing. They don't want to suffer. And that is sin. Compromise with the world is sin. You want to cease from sin? Prepare, have them arm yourself with the mind of Christ, and now suffering, deprivation of your flesh and its comforts and luxuries is a no-brainer. Do we look forward to it and, and make it happen? No, we recognize it will happen because the world hates our Lord and it should hate us. And it will not ever work that you can please God and men simultaneously. You will choose one or the other. You cannot serve them both. Have you spent enough time fulfilling the lusts of your flesh, fulfilling the will of the Gentiles, or are you ready to put your flesh to a little bit of pain and serve the will of God? The world wants you to think you need more. More, 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 more. And all you do is run their rat race for them, with them. And we serve them. And so we buy things we can't afford so that we can be their slaves. And you don't think that you're not their slave. You're fooling yourself. You are. The Bible makes it very clear that the borrower is slave of the lender. You're working for them because you wanted more than you needed. The Bible's concept of contentment is very narrow. With food and clothing, let us be content. There's not even a house on that list. Jesus Christ himself says, well, the the heir of Nesbos, son of man, has no place to lay down his head. Christ modeled that for us, that I'm going to do the will of God, and and he told his disciples, don't worry about where you're going to sleep or anything like that. Just don't take provisions with you. Just go and trust God. He'll take care of you. He'll raise up what you need. Uh, You just serve me with all of your life. Serve me. It'll be inconvenient. It'll be a little suffering involved. Um, And sometimes you're not going to get treated very well. Just brush the dirt off and go on serving me. We're really bad at brushing the dirt off, aren't we? Just brush it off. Keep serving Christ. To be able to do these things, you're going to have to have a different mindset. This is what God calls you to. He's ready to help. He's ready to provide. He's ready to be faithful. He's ready to be comforting. He's ready to be strengthening. He's ready to to carry you along, even in the midst of your suffering. (laughs) 
It's, I, I'm sorry, I just can't hardly say your suffering without thinking. We, none of us have suffered. We congratulate ourselves if we deprive ourselves slightly of a few luxuries. You know, I haven't had ice cream for a week. Suffering. No, that's not true, because Scott brought me a Sonic the other night. Failed. We deprive ourselves of luxury and think we're suffering. We've done nothing. We've done nothing for Christ in this area. And that's why the church is so carnal. We are so fleshly, we are so wrapped in sin because we refuse to let our flesh be deprived of anything. The slightest comfort, the slightest inconvenience, we can't expend that for the service of the kingdom of God. That's to our shame. Oh, you want to be Christ-like. You want to be sanctified. Well, it's time to put on a new mind, the mind of Christ. Are you done? Are you done yet? Serving the Gentiles' will. Serving the lusts of your flesh. Are you done? Is it time to put on the mind of Christ and to do the will of God as the definition of who you are? This is sanctification. And in this respect, many of us are pygmies. We should have grown much farther in this area, and we have not. We think we are sacrificing to get up on the Lord's Day morning when the world sleeps in. We should be ashamed that that's all we can claim for Christ. I'm ashamed. Have we spent enough yet? Please ask yourself that question today. Have you spent enough yet on yourself, on you and yours? Is it time to spend yourself and expend yourself for Christ. This is your sanctification that verifies your salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us, for the power of your spirit dwelling within us, and for the example and working of Christ for us. Lord, our prayer is that you might convict and challenge us through your word today, by your spirit, that it might not be forgotten as we leave this place. We might ask ourselves this question on a daily basis, have I done enough for me? Is it time to serve God? Knowing that the answer to that tells us who we are defines us. Lord, help us every day by your spirit, your word, and your people to be reminded the cost of discipleship. You've paid so much for us, for our salvation. We have served you so little in return. Forgive us. help us to do better this week than we did last. Lord, the war is being lost by your people. So we pray for your help to rescue her in these last days that we might stand Knowing that to stand means to suffer, means to serve you and not ourselves. Lord, we are counting the cost today, and it has been thus far very little. We pray that you might find us with a different mind as we leave this place determined 
that we have spent enough on ourselves and on the Gentiles, on this world, that we might bring our bodies into subjection for your kingdom's sake. O oh Lord, may your will be done. Here in this little portion of earth, as it is in heaven. Not our will, but yours be done. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.